Recently, I spent some time in prayer with a couple, and this couple had just experienced a dimension of suffering that, that no parent ever wants to experience, the loss of a child. It was a tragic freak accident that, that took this poor toddler's life, leaving them and, and many others around them with questions questions that are no mere philosophical abstraction to be debated in a lecture hall or academic journal. No, the questions that emerge in our experiences of tragic loss and suffering are the, the tangible lived questions of theology and philosophy. And they strike us at the very core of our being and and they can even threaten our sense of meaning and purpose. They they can even challenge our notions of God and the very nature of reality. The problem of evil has always been one of the greatest challenges to Christian understandings of God with, with no unanimous answer from the church throughout her history. Questions related to the problem of evil are, are easily the most frequent questions I get from listeners to this program. And I, I've honestly, I've, I've been hesitant to tackle it because there are theologians far greater than I who have tried and with varying levels of success, some have succeeded <laughs> to some degree and others have failed. Either way, it, it seemed like an act of hubris to try and make my contribution to this discussion. But then it dawned on me, what I can authentically contribute to is an overview of the explanations others have given to the problem of evil throughout the history of Christianity. And, and maybe in doing so together, we could notice some common threads, some shared responses of people across the denominational spectrum. Maybe we can see something new from their vantage point that we can use to help us not just make sense of suffering, but perhaps can actually enable us to respond well to suffering and evil in our world. I don't know how long the series is going to go, but I'm excited to go there together. Problem of Evil, Part 1, an introduction and an examination of the book of Job. Before we begin, let's talk about a couple of references that I used extensively in doing this episode. One of the purposes of this podcast is to kind of help bridge some of the gaps between theological academia and where most of us reside in our day-to-day -day questions and you know, the regular nine to five job you might have that might not afford you the time or the expertise to be picking up PhD level books. I always like to turn you guys to some references and some sources so that in case you were feeling ambitious and wanted to try to tackle some of the reading in those books that you could. So a couple of the, the main sources I'm leaning on in today's episode are, uh, the first book is Christian Understandings of Evil, The Historical Trajectory by Charlene P.E. Burns. And the second book that, uh, these are the two books I'm referencing the most throughout today's episode, are, uh, the second book is How to Read Job by John Walton and Tremper Longman III. So I'll provide links in the description of this podcast in case those are books you wanted to pick up and do some reading of. 
on your own. Before we tackle the problem of evil, we perhaps need to address why is it a problem? And this problem goes all the way back, actually it predates Christianity. And while I'm not going to necessarily in this series do a, a treatment of all the different philosophers throughout the world, throughout various civilizations and eras who have attempted to tackle this problem of evil, uh, and we're going to primarily focus on the, the theological reflection that's happened specifically in the Christian tradition, you know, that perhaps one of the the first questions or one of the, the first philosophers who presented this, this poignant question was the Greek philosopher Epicurus. And Epicurus famously asked the question, and here was his question that has since surmised and summarized the problem of evil in a nutshell. And this is what Epicurus asked. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. If he is able but not willing, then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? To paraphrase Epicurus, we could put it like this. You know, God can't be both all-powerful and all-good because there is evil in the world. If there's evil in the world and, all, and God is all-powerful, then he has chosen or is even bringing about the evil in the world because it's not happening. Nothing is trumping God's, um, God's decision-making process in the world. So he has actively chosen and decided to bring about evil, to have it happen in this creation. So therefore, he cannot be good. If he is all good and evil exists and it's a real feature in the world, the problem then is, well, if he's all good, then it's clear that he can't be all-powerful because an all-good God would not allow evil to enter into the world. Evil's in the world, therefore he can't be all-powerful. Kind of, kind of, Epicurus's final conclusion is that, well, if he was neither able nor willing, then he isn't God. In theology and philosophy, there's a term for this recently, relatively recently coined term compared to Epicurus. This term that describes the process of wrestling with the problem of evil is called theodicy. And it comes from Gottfried Leibniz, a philosopher, theologian of sorts from the, in the 17th century. And he coined the term based on two Greek words, theos meaning God and dike meaning justice. So for Leibniz, the question is really about how can God, how do we defend God's justice in the face of the problem of evil and suffering in the world? And sometimes Christians have given an overly simplistic answer to this that neglects the, the difficulties associated with that answer. Even going back to maybe some of the early history of Christianity, it was, it was common to just lump all evil together, moral evil and natural evil. And I'll give an explanation, a definition for those in a moment. And the, the, the reason for the problem of evil in the world was all pointed back towards the, the result of Adam and Eve's first sin. But, but this is hard upon further reflection. You know, my own daughter recently, she's eight years old and and she, uh, she had said sitting, you know, sitting at the kitchen counter maybe just a, a couple of months ago, she said, kind of reflecting on the story of Adam and Eve, she goes, Mom, Dad, 
why is it fair that because Adam sinned, everybody else is sinners? Why is it fair because Adam sinned that now all of this terrible stuff happens in the world? And that's a real legitimate question. It's a question that sometimes maybe the the catechism that we go through, the the programming that we go through to accept the story a particular way, um, we've maybe been programmed to push that question off to the side and just to continue telling the story. Because in some way, it does give an explanation. The explanation is, well, Adam and Eve sinned. So that's why there's evil in the world. But upon further reflection, this is, is this really an adequate explanation? I think this is very hard to uh, justify this being the cause of all problem, uh, the cause of all evil and suffering in the world. And we've talked about this in previous podcasts. One reason why this is hard is it kind of gets the question my daughter was having. She was wrestling with is, does this make God unjust or malevolent? It seems unfair that all, however many billions of people have existed on earth, and not including even plant and animal life, that we would all experience death, devastation, calamity, sicknesses, cancers, debilitating diseases because of one person's choice. This, this is a hard and difficult explanation, but just because it's hard and difficult doesn't make it wrong. Maybe we should just accept it. But, you know, as we've talked about before, I don't even think that's a very good explanation. The problem is, is that we already have in Genesis, in the case of Genesis 2 and 3, we have this deceiving, cunning serpent that's already in the picture, that's tempting them to rebel against God. Where does this thing come from? Where does the serpent that Christians historically have attributed to being some sort of, at least whether a manifestation of Satan or some sort of symbolic representation of Satan, Christians have historically said, well, no, there was some sort of fall of Satan before this, right? And we have a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Evil is already a feature in the grand scale of the cosmos. So that's one problem. A second problem with this maybe overly simplistic explanation that people have wrestled with more and more in the last few centuries because of the discoveries of modern science is that modern science demonstrates a much older earth, an earth that has had cataclysmic events that have had massive death and devastation of plant and animal life. And again, not just because of predation, not just because lions eat gazelles, but we've also have a long, long history of disease, climate changes, and just these kind of nasty features that are normal to evolution. So these are some of the challenges to this very, very simplistic explanation. I think upon further evaluation, the the explanation that all of the wrongs in the world that we experience from typhoons and hurricanes to murders and rapes and robberies, if they can all be pointed back to just one couple, primordial couple making a decision, I don't know if that's such an airtight explanation. And you know what? Christians, theologians throughout history have also felt this way. Now, first, before we 
kind of start unpacking some of the history of how Christians have explained this, even starting with the scriptures, I think it's important to talk about the differences between what we might say are moral evils and natural evils, these sort of categorical differences. I'm going to be referring to these things throughout the podcast, so I think it's important that we get these concepts. Many of you who have already even had just a basic introduction to any theology or philosophy are going to be familiar with these categories. But when we talk about evil, we could sort of talk about evil in two categories. The first category might be the one that we most commonly think of when we think of evil, and that's moral evil. Moral evil is done by conscious moral agents through the misuse of their free will, through their deviation away from God's intentions, from reality. Walton and Longman call this disorder, and it's to be contrasted with the second category, which we could call natural evils. Natural evils are are seemingly different than those moral evils, which are are done by conscious moral agents through the misuse of their free will. Natural evils result from the operation of nature and, and covers cases where there's seemingly no human or moral agent that can be held morally accountable for the evil. We could consider this, again, Longman and um, Walton call this non-order. So to differentiate it between disorder which is where a moral agent is by a free choice misusing their free will to act in a dysfunctional and disordered manner in creation. That is moral evil. Natural evil seems to be perhaps cases of what, again, Longman and Walton might consider non-order. Natural evils resulting just from the operations of nature. For example, a hurricane or a typhoon or uh, a tornado that ravishes some town in Oklahoma. And even some people that get into the more cosmic scale of this, maybe even have questions about our, our black holes and, and supernovas, incidences of natural evil. Well, it's hard to say. It's hard to say in some of those cases. We call them evil. We call natural evils evil when it seems to bring about death and destruction to us. But is there anyone to blame for those cases of natural evil? For the most part, I think most people see them historically as seeing, see them as not necessarily being acts of particular agency. Now, there are some instances where people would have a disagreement on this. And some cases might include pointing to perhaps angelic or spiritual beings as causal agents in creating natural disasters and natural evils. And this, these natural evils can maybe sometimes include not just natural disasters, but I should also include things like um, diseases and, and illnesses. Others have said, well, hang on, hang on. Maybe, maybe we can't say, you know, maybe we don't feel comfortable saying that Adam and Eve particularly are the cause of all natural evils because it does seem like we've had several cataclysmic level events before a historic Adam and Eve could have ever 
been on the scene and, you know, the devastation of dinosaurs happened 65 million, 64, 65 million years ago. I mean, how did Adam and Eve play any part in that? You know, but some people might go and still say, well, no, we still think natural evils, many of the things we might say are natural evils, still have a moral agent or moral agents as a system as causes. And sometimes you might see this across the spectrum from people that are um, people that are passionate about climate change and the effects of climate change, and they'll point to the connection between you know a hurricane that hits the Gulf Coast and you know the carbon emissions from countries like the United States, China, and India, who are major consumers and producers of carbon emissions. You might have that on one side, all the way to the other side, where you might have people like, let's say, you know, uh, Bob Jones uh, from Bob Jones University. I used to chuckle all the time because in my early days of of teaching in high school, a lot of the uh, history books at our high school are from Bob Jones University. I always used to laugh because it seemed like everything in that textbook uh, we, when they were wanting to talk about a causation pointed back to God's judgment for human immorality. And I don't want to dismiss that. I'm just saying, you know, that has been, an, that has been another perspective. It hasn't been normative to say that, you know, a hurricane that hits the Gulf Coast is because of some particular moral evil, but that has been a perspective. We've heard it more recent history of people like 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 Pat Robertson of the the 700 club pointing to things like hurricane katrina being perhaps an act of god's judgment because of moral agents but i think for the most part it's helpful to keep those in separate categories for the time being but we can revisit that and you know if you guys have perspectives on this reach out to me and you know if you want to make a link between even natural evil being done by moral agents, whether that's spiritual principalities and powers, or whether it's all the result of misuse of human free will, I'd be glad to hear those perspectives. As we begin this survey of Christian responses to the problem of evil and how Christians have processed that throughout history, Let's begin in the scriptures. Let's actually begin in the Hebrew Bible or or the Old Testament. I think one of the things worth noting is the sharp contrast, at least in one possible explanation for the problem of evil, between the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, where we we find no mention of demonic spirits that harm humans physically or morally, we compare that with the New Testament where there is actually 568 references to demons or Satan. And in the New Testament, their main activity is tormenting humanity with physical and mental suffering. So we want to acknowledge that there does seem to be a sharp difference in those two. I've talked a little bit about that in the past. Maybe we'll revisit it uh, in, in another episode as to maybe why some of that that difference seems to have taken place. But in going to the Old Testament, if we're going to begin in the Old Testament, I think one of the pivotal books to discuss that I want to focus the rest of our time in today's episode on is the book of Job. 
The book of Job is frequently cited. It might be the most cited book in all of the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, when discussions emerge about the problem of evil and suffering, the questions about where was God in the midst of this. So let's talk about what the book of Job is all about. It's not uncommon for people to look to the book of Job when they experience their own encounters with suffering. And frequently, they can derive, as they look to the book of Job, they can perhaps even derive wrong pictures about what that book tells us about the nature of suffering and the problem of evil. Or maybe they look to that book and they just find answers, seemingly answers that just frustrate them. They don't find it as satisfying. They think that if they just simply read this book that now they're going to have the explanation for the reason why they lost a loved one, the reason why there is poverty and famine in the world, the reason why terrible things happen. And they get this idea that the book of Job is going to somehow show them this perfect model for how they should respond in times of suffering. Maybe they can get some insight from this book as to why these terrible things happen in the world, why they lost a loved one, a spouse. How come, you know, a seemingly, I think back, boy, I, I unpacked Job so much in some of my earliest experiences of suffering. In college, when one of my close mentors and, 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 and my youth pastor died in his early 50s of, of cancer, and I, I went to the book of Job because I was looking for why. Why do righteous people suffer? And I'll be honest, I didn't find a lot of comfort <laughs> in Job. I didn't find a lot of clear-cut answers. And part of that is because I think Perhaps some of my questions were a bit misguided. Job was not written to be an instruction manual or an easy answer key to explain all of why suffering and evil happens in the world. No, set in its historical, theological, and even literary context, the book of Job is about, yes, it's about suffering and the problem of evil, but it's it's about a particular explanation that was common in that day. A particular explanation that was common in the life of an ancient Israelite. A common in the life of someone living in that day, surrounded by Near Eastern neighbors and their various religions and their explanations for the problem of evil and suffering. This is a, this is a thought experiment that puts on trial not God or Job, really. It puts on trial a particular way of answering the problem of evil and suffering. What the book of Job is really about is about this idea that we could call the retribution principle or what Walton and Longman call the great symbiosis. And I'm going to explain that in a second. First, let's, let's, let's start off by exploring the challenges of the book of Job. Here's the challenges. We have 
this sort of twofold challenge that set up the focus of the book of Job, as we could say, in a sense, that this sense that God's policy of the retribution principle, at least as how they would have understood it, is on trial. Here's the problem. The two challenges. First, it seems like it's not good policy for righteous people to prosper because that seems to undermine the development of true righteousness by giving people an ulterior motive. That is the challenge that this mysterious challenger or the Satan presents in the heavenly courts, right? The only reason why Job acts righteous is because you give him an ulterior motive for being righteous. It's not really true righteousness. This is just simply him knowing that the retribution principle works. The second challenge of the book, the second challenge is this lives in tension with this first challenge is that It doesn't seem to be good policy for righteous people to suffer. They're the good people, like the ones who are actually following God. So the challenge to God's justice and wisdom in the world is this. Well, God, what are you going to do about it? I mean, how are you actually going to providentially govern the cosmos? If righteous people are only righteous because they get a benefit out of it, because they get some reward out of it, are they actually righteous? But simultaneously, if righteous people don't get any benefit, well, what kind of God is that? Why would this God choose to have righteous people suffer? In some way, isn't that a disincentive to be righteous in the world? And what does that say about God's righteousness. As you hopefully know from the story of Job, and if you've never actually read the book of Job before, maybe maybe you're not somebody that's grown up in any sort of Christian tradition and you just like tuning into this podcast to maybe learn things about theology or you have a general curiosity of this stuff, it'd probably be a good idea to maybe pause this podcast and, and go take a reading, go take a, a sit down and, and, and try in one reading to read the book of Job cover to cover. So as we know in the story of Job, Job is a righteous man. It's explicitly stated that there's no one more righteous than him. This is done for a particular purpose, and we'll discuss that in a moment. And this challenger brings in the heavenly courts an accusation against God. It really is against God and God's way of governing the world and governing the universe. And as a result of this challenge, uh, we see Job experience immense suffering, devastation, loss of children, disease, right? And then Job's friends come to him and try to give an explanation for the suffering. Job's friends represent the near ancient Near Eastern idea of this retribution principle or Again, what Walton and Longman call the the great symbiosis. So this book is distinctly, very distinctly set in this ancient Near Eastern context of its day. The genre of the book is actually very common. We could call this sort of an ancient Near Eastern thought experiment. I don't think, I personally don't think, and I think most scholars are with me on this, 
that this is not necessarily a, a story of an actual historical person named Job. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. That's besides the point. This is a very common feature of ancient Near Eastern literature that bears many literary resemblances to this story, that this is a thought experiment. It's a wisdom book featuring a pious sufferer, and it's actually pretty common in the ancient Near East. That's not to say that, just to be clear, that the book of Job, I don't see the book of Job as inspired. Be clear, it's, I'm not saying that I don't, I, I think that for some reason the book of Job is just copying other books. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it's part of a common uh, literary style of that day. So that should help us help shape the reading. And you can maybe go back to my conversation with Dr. Janine Brown a couple episodes ago if you're kind of doing some beginners and beginning uh, intro to how to read the Bible. We want to read it in its proper literary form. You don't read a comic book the same way as you read a engineering textbook. So we want to learn these, learn the proper ways of reading these texts, okay? So it's a, it's a wisdom book featuring a pious sufferer. The answers that the book offers, that Job offers, transcends anything that was proposed by these common ancient Near Eastern wisdom books with a pious sufferer. And it was a revolutionary concept of God that was very unique to the Jewish people, to the Hebrew people, Israelites, unique in the Old Testament and unique to Christians. All right? So again, this is a wisdom book featuring a pious, pious sufferer. And, and there's, here, I'll give you one example. And Longman and Walton bring up this, this great example of one of these um, neighbors, neighboring religions and people groups to ancient Israel and one of their wisdom books with a pious sufferer. For example, there is a, a neo-Assyrian neo prayer expressing one pious sufferer's confusion over all that's going wrong in his life. And he begins by telling of all the, you know, listing off all the possible ways he might have offended some deity or another. Did he, you know, as Longman and Walton say, quote, did he accidentally step on a sacred space of some known or unknown god? Did he perhaps eat some forbidden fruit by a known or unknown god? Presumably, again, this is quoting Longman and Walton, the sufferer would know if he had committed an ethical offense, for example, like theft and adultery. But pleasing the gods in the ancient world was pleasing the gods in the ancient world was more concerned with ritual than with ethics. It would be easy to commit ritual offenses without knowing it. If any ritual offense took place, the God might well abandon a person and thereby withdraw his protection, leaving the person vulnerable to all sorts of troubles, end quote. For Israel's ancient Near Eastern neighbors, the gods could be rather petty. They didn't necessarily, it wasn't up to them to defend a certain ethical standard. In fact, there was a sense in which ethics and what's right and wrong transcended some of these petty and undiscernible gods. These gods were much more concerned, again, with rituals, this keeping up with particular rituals that just so happened to coincidentally keep the priests well-fed and a roof over their heads. <laughs> 
as a fun aside about the uh, practices of ancient Near Eastern religions, that was primary. So, you know, in this, the case of the, one of the, the ancient Near Eastern Neo-Assyrian pious sufferers, this pious sufferer goes, oh, I don't know. I could have stepped on a sacred space. I don't know. I could have done something that offended some unknown God. I better look through, you know, the list of my rituals. Maybe I accidentally committed a wrong ritual. Well, if that's the case, the gods might abandon me and then this random trouble might hit me. All right. In most of the ancient world, people believed that they were created by the gods. For the gods. All right. So many of Israel's neighbors have creation myths in which the purpose for humanity is to serve the gods. Gods need things. They need food. They need, they need alcohol. They need a house. They need a temple. They need clothes. They need all of these luxuries because they have these very, you know, they're gods. They've got very lavish lifestyles. Again, coincidentally, so do the priests. <laughs> so, you know, there could be some, I, I do think there's the real possibility that, um, you know, demonic fallen principalities and powers have deceived and brought deception to these ancient Near Eastern peoples. And I also think that, you know, human politicians and priests figured out, you know, this is a good way to make a living. We're going to tell these stories and get these people to bring their sacrifices to the temple. And it's going to go to us, the food, the drink, the sacred prostitutes, all of that stuff. So it's a good deal for the priests. But anyways, as the story goes, for most of Israel's neighbors, the gods needed people. And so the gods, as they needed people, their responsibility was to uh, provide for the people. As long as the people did brought to them what they needed, brought their sacrifices, brought their food, their clothes, you know, built them the temples, the gods would protect them. So there was this great, again, this is where Longman and Walton call it the great symbiosis. You scratch my back, gods, and the gods will scratch your back. The book of Job then is really about the trial of the retribution principle. This is the retribution principle on trial, and it brings and calls into question what would have been a normative way for the people of that day to think. Just as these gods were subject to the retribution principle, you could think of them as subordinate to some other ret- some other principle, right? There's a there's this great symbiosis that happens, but the symbiosis is to keep the gods from abandoning you so that evil and terrible things won't randomly happen to you. Maybe random is not the right word. It's really not random because if you don't hold up your end of the deal, you know, you might get away with it for a few months. You might not, you know, you don't bring your sacrifices. You don't treat the gods as, as you want them to. Well, you know, something terrible might not happen to you right away, but they have abandoned their protection and provision of you. And eventually, this retribution principle, there's a, there's a justice that is over the gods. So in the book of Job, what's really happening here is that we have the retribution principle on trial. It calls into question Israel's notion that was probably ingrained in them that God had to answer to something above him. 
that Yahweh was subservient to forces that compelled him to act in particular ways. It's the policies of God that are on trial, and the principal policy on trial is this retribution principle. And the challenger, the Satan, claims that the retribution principle is detrimental. He's like, you know, God, if this is the way the world operates, well, you know, true righteousness, again, is just the result of an ulterior motive. Again, what Longman and Walton just referred to as the anticipation of gain. On the flip side, the challenger, the Satan, isn't the only one bringing a charge against the retribution principle. Job brings that charge as well. Job claims that if the retribution principle is not enforced, then God's justice becomes suspect. So God is being challenged on both sides, and he is being challenged to do you answer to this? God, in your wisdom and the way you govern and operate the universe, do you answer to something beyond you? Again, for like Sumerian people, their concept of the gods, the answer to that would have been yes. You know, the gods, it's just built into the cosmos that there is evil in it. It's just one of the control attributes in the fabric of the cosmos. And that hasn't been established by the gods. That's been established by something else. And, you know, that it doesn't really give an answer <laughs> to anything. It's just there. It's actually evil exists outside of the jurisdiction of the gods. So you can get hit with some random evil, or you can be hit with some petty evil, the, the evil that happens when you don't actually give the god what they deserve. You know, and you will get retributed to you because you did not bring the God what they deserved. You will get retributed back to you a possible punishment, a calamity. It could just be something petty from the gods. It could just be simply, well, the gods just leave you alone. And then, you know, the evil that's out there just, it could come your way. But the principle remains clear. You do these things. You act in the world this way to maintain a sense of provision and protection from the gods. And this is what Job's friends represent. If you go through the responses and questions of Job's friends, what you would find in each of the friends' responses are the common ways of thinking in, those, in that day among Israel's neighbors about how their God, Yahweh, should act. But their notion of how God should act in the world is based on their pagan ancient Near Eastern neighbors' notions of the retribution principle. And so what God comes onto the scene and when, you know, God's not angry with Job really and Job's response to him and Job's questions of God, but God does direct some anger towards Job's friends. And again, this is a thought experiment. You know, this is, this is in many ways a parable. We'll talk about that more in a moment. This is like an Old Testament parable getting you to, to getting Israel to think again about, is this the way that our God actually works in the world? And one of the ways they do that is by showing how God would respond to that idea. It's not even so much, it's not the people like the friends that God gets angry at. You have to keep in mind, again, this is like a thought experiment. 
The friends may or may not actually be real people here. The friends are the serve a literary purpose of presenting these perspectives common in, in ancient Israel. And when they hear God's response, God's response is clear. You guys are wrong, <laughs> right? You guys are wrong. All of your explanations have not captured the wisdom of God. But is the retribution principle completely wrong? It's one thing to say that it does not satisfy completely an accurate description of how the world works in its entirety, but do we abandon it altogether? Now, this is where we have to read Job in its, not just on its literary context, in its historical context, but we need to set it within the rest of the Old Testament wisdom literature. The retribution principle is evident in Psalms, right? The psalmist frequently expects the retribution principle to work. Think of places like Psalm 37 and Psalm 55, right? We see many Psalms in which David considers himself innocent and he is under unjust attack and he expects God to step in. He expects the retribution principle to work and that his suffering would be relieved by God, that he is righteous and God will vindicate him, that God would save him, right? You can take a look at Psalms 26 and Psalms 35, for example. So in this specific sense, the, the Psalms could be reformulated more specifically, again, as Longman and Walton describe as, quote, the righteous will enjoy God's presence and its accompanying benefits, the wicked will forfeit the presence of God and will suffer the consequences of abandonment. So based on the Psalms, I don't think we can completely get rid of the retribution principle. How about Proverbs? Well, Proverbs is one of the, the best places to see some form of the retribution principle at work. Proverbs have many, many sayings. And again, the Pro book of Proverbs is a collection of sayings. These sayings are by definition generalizations. So the truth is found in the fact that they are probabilistic. They are what we might say are normative, but it is not that what you, if you follow this prescription in Proverbs, that it's going to work without exception. Let's consider Proverbs 2. Start off at verse six for one, for one example here. For the Lord gives wisdom; from His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. For He guards the course of the just and protects the way of His faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you, and understanding will guard you. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from men whose words are perverse, who have left the straight paths to walk in dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Retribution principle. <laughs> you follow the right path, you're saved from wicked men, you're saved from calamity. This, we could say again, is normative. 
we could say that the statements in Proverbs that seem to reflect some version of a retribution principle, we could say that those statements indicate, as Walton and Longman say, quote, a higher probability of the stated action than any of the other possible alternatives. The probability is in your favor that if you work hard in life, that you are diligent with your money, well, that you're going to enjoy a more comfortable life that experiences less suffering. That is the probabilistic norm. That is the the statistical likelihood. What that doesn't mean, though, is that the retribution principle works all the time. Or, we could put it like this, it doesn't mean that the retribution principle governs God's wisdom in the cosmos. We could also see the retribution principle in another wisdom book in Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes and Job kind of give Psalms and Proverbs a a conversation partner, right? In Ecclesiastes, the preacher says, Things like, in this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do the righteous get what they deserve? Well, sometimes the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, no, the righteous often get what the wicked deserve and the wicked get what the righteous deserve. Now, the question that comes up when we read Ecclesiastes and Job is, are these the statistical norm? Probably not, right? If you work hard, you're wise with your money, you treat people the right way in general, life will go better for you. But again, Ecclesiastes and Job brings into conversation with Psalms and Proverbs, yes, this is the normative way. But lest you think you can control and govern the universe, you don't. And there isn't a singular principle that governs God and governs the cosmos. The retribution principle is typically true. Righteous prosper, wicked suffer. But it's not a strict formula. Human beings' wickedness cannot be inferred when they are suffering. Nor, as Longman and Walton highlight, nor can, quote, their righteousness be inferred when they are prospering. These are some of the examples that we see in books like Job, books like Ecclesiastes, which are inspired dialogue partners with the psalmist, with the wisdom of Proverbs. Job is a thought experiment, an inspired thought experiment that brings into sharp contrast some of the other wisdom books with pious sufferers in its day. It's a literary construction, an inspired construction that uses these characters to to bring issues of their day into sharp focus. We could put it like this. It's like you start the book of Job and you go, what if, what if we imagine a scenario like this? You know, so there's a bunch of things that happen in Job that we don't need to think of as, uh, you know, normative, right? God doesn't need to be informed about Satan's activities, right? And actually, I, I think it's fairly clear 
well, it's not, I shouldn't say fairly clear. It does take a little bit of scholarship and, and digging. You know, this is not the, the challenging angel that emerges in the heavenly council. This is not the same Satan as the New Testament. The Hebrew word here for Satan simply means challenger, accuser. It's just a function of this particular angel in this portrayal of, you know, and the angelic court being like that of uh, a king who's got a royal court and has, who has uh, delegated certain functions and activities to people within his court, right? So we don't need to think that. We don't need to think that God involves himself with wagers with the devil. No, that's, that's, that we don't need to concern ourselves with that. We don't need to concern ourselves with whether or not God has to like, you know, test our motivations, right? The, the questions God has and presents are questions for us as readers. You know, will the most righteous man ever known maintain his righteousness when his world falls apart? God doesn't have that question. God doesn't bring these questions about, well, I don't know if I'm, what I, you know, I don't know what to make of you until I test you with something. That's, that's not what's happening here either. The characters in this story are characters in a story. It's an inspired, it is a true story, but not true in the sense of we're talking about uh, necessarily like this happened on a particular day. And some reason why we don't, you know, think that is we don't get a, um, well, we get a place that Job lives in. We don't get a setting, really. Uh, we don't get it like with other books of history in the Old Testament. We don't get a lineage. We don't get who's king. We don't get any of that stuff. So it's pretty clear this is like a, like a parable that Jesus gives in the New Testament, right? In the Gospels. This is, a, this is an Old Testament parable. Do we need to be concerned that God might violently wipe out our children? No, this is part of, can we think of the worst possible thing that could happen to the most righteous person? That's the thought experiment. This is not theological statements about how God actually acts in the world. The thought experiment is about whether or not God governs by the retribution principle, or maybe we could say whether the retribution principle governs God. It's a way of Israel wrestling with the fact they've been given a covenant, the covenant that says, if you act this way, you will receive these benefits. It is similar to the great symbiosis of their neighbors, but this is how God reveals how he is different. He is different and he shows and he challenges us to think about how the great retribution principle may not explain all incidences of suffering. It's a way that Israel could, and this was happening, right? You know, you follow the covenant you live, you do the Proverbs, you're going to have a great life. But what happens to that person, just as we experience in our day-to-day life, that person who seemingly has been more righteous than anybody we know, and yet comes down with cancer in their 50s and leaves behind a wife and kids. I've seen that thing in my own life. So what does Job tell us? Job doesn't tell us that God is doing this to wipe out people's children. And No, it's like... What it's telling us is I don't need to go looking for hidden sins in this guy's life. That there isn't a direct correlation all the time between someone experiencing suffering and their lack of righteousness. That is not the case. 
the reason why these extremes of like, you know, Job's children dying and hideous boils have to happen is that it's part of the literary format to posit the extremes of Job's suffering to be as extreme as his righteousness and his prosperity. He is righteous, he's rich, right? All the things you would think of. So how can we tell this story in a way that helps you get how this, the most righteous person, the most rich person you could think of experiences the worst things you could think of? Now, as you read this, do you think that that person did something wrong to have these terrible things? And the book says, no, it doesn't. It would take, it takes this total loss to provide the factors for the wisdom to be, in, uh, to, to be communicated, the wisdom instruction of this book to be communicated. Again, think about this along the same lines as we, we might think of Jesus's parables. They have these realistic issues, but it constructs situations that might mix some elements of realism with extreme or even ridiculous factors. Consider even here in the book of Job, the introduction of characters, which do serve as characters, these characters or creatures, we could say, the behemoth and Leviathan. In the ancient Near Eastern context, behemoth and Leviathan are in a category that we call chaos creatures, or we might call anti-cosmos creatures. They are creatures of non-order, which are different than disorder. So we could even say they are creatures of what we might say moral evil, but maybe we shouldn't consider them evil, right? These are creatures in that ancient Near Eastern context that are, they've got a foot in the ordered world, but they've got a foot in the world of chaos. They are mindless by nature. They're not morally evil, but they can do you seriously serious harm. Leviathan is this mythical uh, sea monster, uh, an ancient Godzilla, if you will, right? Uh, think about even Job's response to one of his friends in, in Job 7. You know, he asked why God was treating him as if he were a chaos creature, Job 7, 12, right? Using tannin, that's the same Hebrew word as in Genesis 1, the great creatures of the sea. It's the same Hebrew word. Why, he goes, well, you know, why is God treating me like a chaos creature, keeping me under guard? You know, it's very normal in uh, the ancient Near Eastern context for people to think of the gods as, um, you know, kind of partially keeping these chaos creatures on some sort of leash, right? But Job goes even further. To, you know, Job's, Job questions whether, whether or not God himself is a chaos creature act, and acts like a chaos creature, Job 30, 15 to 23. No, this is also another thing we want to say very, very clearly. We don't want to go to the other extreme and treat God as if he is a chaos creature, as if he's a leviathan, a mindless, unpredictable, you don't know what you're going to get from him. On the one hand, it's clear that the retribution principle does not universally explain all instances of suffering. The ditch on the other side is to consider God as some sort of mindless chaos creature. Job makes that accusation and God responds specifically, right? God responds specifically as saying, no, 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 no. Job, like 
you don't know what you're talking about, man. Like, can you put a hook in the Leviathan's mouth? Can you tame that thing? You can't overthrow or domesticate the Leviathan. If you can't do this to Leviathan, why do you think you can do it to me? There is a otherness to God, but God is not the chaos creature. God is not random. He does allow for a temporary state of non-order. These creatures are part of the cosmos as they exist right now. There will be non-order. There will be black holes. (laughs) There will be asteroid collisions. There will be typhoons. That's part of the the non-order. There will be leviathans. But God is not a chaos monster, nor does he answer to chaos monsters. Another question Christians have as they read the book of Job is they consider, well, maybe, maybe the retribution principle still works like all the time, but maybe it's just delayed to the afterlife. Okay. Well, that might be a possibility. You know, we need to consider that as an option as we read the entirety of the scriptures. Can we get that from Job? I don't think we can derive that that in the affirmative by reading simply the book of Job. We cannot say that Job teaches us, well, the retribution principle always works and it just simply gets delayed until the afterlife. So those really, really terrible people, you know, those, those people that have lived horrible, horrible lives, they will eventually get theirs in the afterlife. I'm not saying that that isn't true. We're going to go to some other places to kind of process that. But we can't, I don't think we can say that that's true from Job. Job 7, 9, right? Shows death is final. Job says there's no return from death. Job 17, 13 through 16. When you die, that's the end of your hope. Um, Job wrestles the, in, in Job 21, 13, right? Why is it that the wicked also go to Sheol and they go there peacefully? Job looks at death in Job 3, 20 through 22. He looks at death as rest, right? Not as a, like, going to some place of an eternal reward or some place of eternal vindication, but he's like, at least I'm done with this experience, right? It gives me rest. So just based on exclusively in the book of Job, Job doesn't offer, like, the afterlife as an explanation for why bad stuff happens and says, hey, just hang on, things will be made right in the afterlife. Human characters don't show really any knowledge of reward or punishment after death. They don't see any explanation. Uh, They don't give us any explanation that would relieve the tension of this situation for, for, for Job or for God. So that's not an option I think we can deduce from Job. That doesn't mean that it's not possibly there elsewhere in the scriptures, but I think we should cross that one off the list. So... You know, in conclusion, what, what can we say? What, what could we say? What could, what could we say about what we learn about suffering from the book of Job? I want to highlight some of the things that Longman and Walton bring up as part of their conclusion. We can say that suffering is just part of the human experience. We can say that suffering is 
it's kind of a side effect of having a creation that's different than a creator. The biblical view of the world is one in which order has not yet been fully achieved. As Longman and Walton highlight, they quote, while we cannot imagine what a fully ordered world would look like, we can recognize that both non-order and disorder are responsible for suffering at one level or another. I mean, think about even this, you know, we have these capacities that, that seem to be created by God, capacities for human emotion in which we can experience hurt. If we can also, with those emotions, experience love, then we will just by sheer consequence of that be able to experience the difference between love and something that opposes that perhaps pain, perhaps heartbreak. So in this particular experience of life with our particular bodies, suffering is unavoidable. We have, we have nervous systems that have been designed to give us experiences of pain when we touch something that's hot or, you know, we, we trip and we fall, we stub our toe in these experiences are normal features of creation. These might not feel ideal, right? These don't feel like the ideal thing, but we just simply cannot shut out that it is actually just part of part of being in the created world. This quote, the suffering, and this is from Walton and Longman, the suffering and, uh, the suffering and evil of the world are not due to weakness, oversight, or callousness on God's part, but rather they are the inescapable cost of a creation allowed to be other than God. In order for there to be a creation that is differentiated from the creator in some way, there must be, from Job's case, right? We must acknowledge that the, the story of Job shows us the behemoth and the leviathan, these features are a real feature and they show us a differentiation between a created thing and a creator. I don't, I'm not saying that as to give you like, this is the ultimately satisfactory answer for all of your questions of evil and suffering. Nope. This is just one part of showing how different, uh, you know, how the Old Testament, New Testament and theologians throughout church history have tried to wrestle and answer this question. And this is just one possible way of differentiating. We have to have a differentiation between creator and creation. We could also say that from Job, we can deduce this about suffering. Suffering, and this might be the most important takeaway from Job, we cannot assume that people experiencing suffering are doing so because of their sin. Suffering can be the result of sin, what we might say, again, are moral evils. Not even just their own, but we could, be, we could be referring to the sin of somebody else towards that person, that disorder. But it can also just be experienced as the result of the incompletion of creation. Creation is not done yet. God, the eschaton has not come. God has not completed his creation story. And so we experience non-order. Leviathan is a real feature of the world. So we cannot assume, though oftentimes there are suffering and evil as the result of moral evils of disorder, 
ordered appetites of people sinning. And even we can experience the real results of sin in our own life when we have sinned and it causes us destruction. We cannot say automatically that suffering is because, that all suffering is because of sin in the world. We can also say (laughs) that thankfully, we don't always receive and reap what we sow. Sometimes we sow things that we don't reap. We can say with thankfulness that there may have been times in which we acted as wicked people in the world and we did not get reciprocated back to us what we had deposited in the world. We can also say thankfully that the retribution principle doesn't always work. If the retribution principle always worked, would there be no grace and mercy? So God does not answer to some external lady justice or we don't we don't uh, the scales the blind uh, the blind st- the statue of the the woman uh, the sc- with the scales of justice who is blind God does not answer to that some external thing beyond him he is there's fully capable of governing and creating a world in which sometimes people who live wickedly by sheer mercy, do not reap what they sow. And we should give thanks that that is, not all, that is a feature of our experience of reality that gives us opportunity to repent, right? So it doesn't mean that the person who is living some lavish lifestyle is doing so because they are more righteous than you either. We should never assume that someone who is suffering has done something to deserve pain or punishment. That should, not, should never be our first assumption. When we hear a diagnosis of a friend or family member getting you know, diagnosed with some terminal disease, the one thing I think we can say Job should teach us is that we should not assume first, like Job's friends, that the retribution principle is at work here. We can't go there first. Does that mean we eliminate it? No. You know what? If I, uh, if I eat hostess, um, hostess cupcakes, you know, 4,000 calories, 5,000 calories of hostess cupcakes every day. I think there is some way that the retribution principle works. I will likely get diabetes or heart disease, become morbidly obese. That is a real feature. But we can never assume first, like Job's friends, that evil and suffering is happening in someone's life because they did something wrong. This is what Job clearly points to us, and this is one of the most dangerous facets of a mistaken theology, a theology that was continued on by the Pharisees. It was common in Jesus's day for people to link leprosy, to link um, these terrible conditions like leprosy with something wrong that person had done or that person's family member had done. Consider when Jesus is asked in John's gospel, when they encounter a blind man, well, who, who sinned, this person or his parents, that he'd be born blind? And I imagine, you know, this is my own imagination here. Jesus did not explicitly say this. I imagine Jesus going, guys, didn't you read Job? <laughs> didn't you read the book of Job? It's not that simple. 
people don't just experience suffering because they or someone around them did something wrong. This is a dangerous way of thinking. And the way this becomes so dangerous is because in real situations of people's pain and suffering, not just merely in the philosophical abstract, in the in a podcast that you're listening to, right? Or you sit through a lecture or watch a YouTube video, you read a book on pain and suffering. But when people, real human people, go through pain and suffering and they come to church and what they hear at church makes them go, maybe I did something to deserve this. Guys, there is so much devastation that that does to people. This doesn't mean that we completely throw out Proverbs and Psalms. I want to make that clear. We want to instruct people that, yes, there is a way that leads to life. But if we're going to take anything from Job, right? If we're going to take anything from Job's contribution to the the discussion on the problem of evil and suffering, we should take away this. Doesn't always work like that. Doesn't always work like that. Sometimes the righteous don't get what they deserve. Sometimes the wicked don't get what they deserve. We live in a world with leviathans. (laughs) We live in a world with non-order and disorder. And the explanations aren't always that easy. Well, I want to thank you guys for listening in today. I want to thank the Patreon, Deep Talks Patreon community. I want to thank in particular Paul, uh, one of our just most generous supporters. Thank you, Paul, for your contributions to making this program happen. I'm excited to continue on this series. Uh, depending on possible schedules of guests, you know, there might be a few guest conversations sprinkled in between episodes here. Um, but for the most part, I'm going to kind of give my attention to, to this particular topic. But I really want to talk with you guys about it. And I, I really want to hear feedback from you as you process these questions. And I, I'd love to even hear from you if there's if you feel comfortable sharing specific examples of, in your life in which an instance of pain or suffering brought about the, the problem of evil in a, in a deeply personal way. So you can reach out to me on Twitter. You can leave comments on the, uh, you know, the Podbean page where I host this, uh, this podcast. Um, you can reach out to me there. You can even find me on Instagram, but uh, Twitter is probably primary. I'd love to hear from you guys. Thank you guys for your support. Again, those in the Deep Talks Patreon community, if you want to get involved with that, you can check out the link in the description. Um, we're trying to get to a first uh, first level of goals, which should kind of help sustain the weekly production of this podcast and some of the, hopefully the other ideas that I want to do and in incorporating more video stuff in the future. So that's one way you can support. You can also support by just leaving a, a simple review on Apple Podcasts. That's the primary place that most people go to get their podcasts. I don't, <laughs> but... But uh, statistically, most people do. So uh, you can leave a review there if you feel so led. All right, till next time, guys. Uh, We'll talk again soon.